You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Welcome back to part two of my interview with the legendary case officer, George Cave. We will pick up right where we left off in part one. George, that was a very interesting time when you were in Tehran. And as you know well, the, the, the uh, revolution would come again, another revolution in 79, uh, when, they held, when they raided the American embassy and held uh, many of our folks hostage. Could you see when you were there sort of the seeds of that, what might come down the track? Did you sense that? Because the American intelligence community and the government took a lot of hits for sort of not foreseeing that, not understanding what was going on in Iran. What was your sense? Well, it's, it's extremely difficult for governments to change policies. That's the policy, but could you see, but, but yes. it's another thing to in produce 19, intelligence. In 1975, I wrote for, the, for Dick Helms had asked me to write a long airgram about the changes in Iran. And by 1975, I had concluded that Mohammad Reza Pahlavi was going to be the last Shah of Iran. Uh, that something, you can't predict revolutions, but something was going to happen because uh, when they had the freewheeling elections the Shah was going to allow in 1975, people for the first time became very politically active. I knew a lot of the peop, uh, organizers in the Iran Noeen party, which was Hoveda's party. And uh, they were very enthusiastic. The population was very enthusiastic because they're going to be able to vote for the leadership. According to the Shah's dicta, the party that won the election, the head of the party would become prime minister after the British model. So what happened was is that General Nasiri, the head of Savak, and I guess it was a Muzagar, Jamshida Muzagar, who was the Minister of Interior at the time, went to the Shah and said, look, we've just done a survey. If you allow free elections, the Iran-Noween party is going to be 
going to get uh, over 80% of the vote. And the Shah sort of mumbled and said, well, could you make it 60-40? And they said, not without it being apparent that it's being rigged. So, and then Nasiri told the Shah that, look, your majesty, if you allow these elections to go the way you're, the way it's now set up, you will be the first Shah in 2,500 years that didn't decide on who was prime minister. And I think that did it. The Shah canceled the elections, dissolved the two political parties, and created the Rastakhiz party with himself as the head of the party. And so, in fact, the government had a very good sense of the, of the thinkings and feelings of the people, of the electorate, if you will. Did we? Did we, the, the, the government, the intelligence community, did we, did we also understand that? I think we were in the difficult position of, of telling the U.S. government something it didn't want to hear. That's our job. I know. Well, Dick Helms sent in my dispatch, or, or my airgram. But who reads airgrams? It was 26 pages. And I, I concluded a concluded statement. He says, I, I just said that uh, either an individual or an idea or a group is going to end up taking over. So we, in effect, as a government, turned a deaf ear and eye, if you will, to what was happening. Well, in... look, at, look, at, so, um, look at Jimmy Carter's visit to Tehran at the end of 1977, where he gave this incredible speech. Incidentally, that speech, whether Carter might not like it, but that was one of the reasons why the hostages were kept beyond uh, the election in 1980. Why? So, why was that? Because he so despised Carter that when he was told after the elections they were going to release, you know, when Reagan was, and then someone told Khomeini, well, you know, Carter's still president, you know, and so uh, Khomeini said, as long as Carter's president, we'll hold the hostages. Interesting. George, let me move forward a bit. You were eventually, after that stint, uh, made chief of station in Jeddah, capital of, of, uh, of, of uh, in Saudi Arabia. Yes. And you served in that post for a couple of years until you were eventually PNG, that is declared persona non grata, which is uh, in effect being thrown, being declared not welcome in the country. But that's very unusual for that to have happened in Saudi Arabia, which has essentially been a, an ally of the United States and the country with whom we've had good relations. How did that happen? Well, I, I actually belong to a very exclusive club. There's only two other American officials who were ever declared persona non grata from Saudi Arabia. I don't know if since, since my declaration whether there's been anyone else, but I haven't heard of any. Um, what happened was is that Jimmy Carter was putting enormous pressure on the Saudis to join him in a Middle East peace. He felt that he needed something like that if he was going to be re-elected. He needed some big success. Um, I took it upon myself 
to write a private message to the director asking him uh, to meet with the president and explain several different points because some of the senior Saudis were questioning based on the pressure being put on put on them uh, to go along with Carter's uh, hope for a general Middle East peace. They were they were afraid that uh, well they were certain that they couldn't do that. They couldn't get out. They were prepared to do things behind the scenes, but they couldn't openly support a Middle East peace. And of course, they were very opposed to a separate peace between Israel and Egypt. In fact, they broke off relations with Egypt as a result of uh, a result of that. And the problem was I sent my comments in on a Saturday morning, and then I read them on the front page of the International Herald Tribune the following Friday. They had been leaked. Uh, part of the problem, I gather, was that um, by this time, by this time, Carter, President Carter, um, was uh, not really paying much attention to the intelligence community, particularly the Admiral had difficulty in seeing him so that he put my message in the President's daily brief. And that's how he got my comments to the President. And that was obviously leaked to the press since it appeared in the International Herald Tribune. It was almost word for word. And so, were you were you identified by name? No, okay. you can't do that because of FISA. Right, but but you were but it was clear where it was from, and so as a result of yeah. which you were uh, no longer welcome. I think I was referred to as the chief U.S. intelligence officer in Saudi yeah. Arabia. So you were no longer welcome in the kingdom. Well, they gave me a week to get out. <laughs> a week to get out. George they let, let my wife and kids stay until the kids finish school. Well, that was generous. Let me uh, let me ask you, George. <clears throat> let's move forward to something which has commanded a tremendous amount of interest in our country, both by just people, not just historians, but people following public events uh, in a very uh, sort of major way. You know, the major developments in our country, and one of the major developments in our country was the Iran-Contra issue. Uh, for which, as you know, we had a president who was brought in and asked to testify about what he remembered or didn't remember and so forth. Could you just give us your perspective on Iran-Contra? How many hours have you got? <laughs> well, we have a limited amount of time, and I realize part of it is how you got brought into Iran-Contra, because we are talking to you. Uh, you brought into Iran-Contra and your perspective at the time and now looking back? Well, the agency, particularly in the person of Casey, uh, did not want to rely on the translations of Gorbani Far and, and uh, Albert Hakim. So as soon as I was mentioned to Casey, they said, fine, bring him in. And this was on March the 5th. 
And for the first time, I learned that the U.S. government is dealing with Gorbanifar, whom I had terminated in 1980. Gorbanifar, could you just, just a word or two on who he was? Gorbanifar is a very successful Iranian businessman and who has been a major factor in the gray arms business, gray and black arms business. Yes. And um, at this meeting, Casey, and there was Tom Twain, there was several other people, Ollie North was there, Charlie Allen. And Charlie Allen was then a senior CIA officer. Senior Oliver CIA. North, of course, was a retired Marine officer then the working time, in the Charlie National Security Charlie Council. Charlie Allen was the deputy chief of CTC. Yeah, of the counterintelligence. Uh, the counterterrorist. Center. center. Counterterrorism center, right. And I objected pretty strenuous to saying that, A, you can't trust Gorbanifar. And B, uh, the Israelis have have a different view of this than we do. The meeting dispersed, and I went down to my office, and I called Casey's secretary and said, I've got to see him. So I went up and privately expressed serious doubts about the wisdom of Gorbanifar um, using using him because you can't. He had, man has no. He's totally most totally amoral person I ever met. And also that I was leery of uh, a major role being played by an Israeli in the person of Amiram Nir. Uh, Casey said, "Look, George. Sometimes you know, with regard to God, money for is it." Sometimes we have to deal with people like that because of the situation. And I thought to myself, yeah, you're thinking of OSS times, where if the guy didn't do what you told him to do, you take him out and shoot him. Um, so anyway, he said, look, George, do your best to make it work. I did tell him I thought it was a good idea that we'd be talking, we're talking to the Iranians. So Twetton and North and I Tom Twetton then was uh, chief of the NE division. Of NE division. Mm -hmm. And uh, we flew to Paris the following day to meet with Gorbanifar and Nir and begin um, the setup for uh, a visit to Tehran. Over the next couple of weeks, there were some contacts and one of the excuse me, one of the proposals was for North and I to fly in with Gorbanifar and have and have meetings with Iranians to set an agenda for a meeting with a senior U.S. official. And we were going to go in in April, but uh, Admiral. Poindexter ruled that out, saying it was too dangerous. He was then the National Security Counselor. Yeah, head of yeah. the National yeah. Security yeah. Council. And I couldn't, you know, if it was too dangerous for the two of us to go in, you know, why was it not dangerous for six of us to go in in May? 
George, just if I may ask you, what was the purpose of your going? To offer them some intelligence support? I mean, had it reached the point where we were looking at the so-called arms for hostages trade, or was it a very early stage of that? It was, no, we'd already been, we'd already supplied the Iranians. The Israelis in in uh, September of of 1985 had sent in 500 tow missiles, and then we in February sent in a thousand tow missiles. So, and we also sent in um, 18. I can't remember the name of the surface-to-air missiles. I can't Stingers? The no. Hawks, yeah, Hawks. Uh, but, but the purpose of, of, of your going to, if you had gone with Gomanifar, what was the purpose of that visit? The purpose your... was to have an initial meeting with the Iranians okay. and come up with an agenda uh, that both the Iranians and we agreed upon, and then it would be followed by the, the McFarland visit. So it, that was ruled out. I was in constant phone conversation with the guy that was the deputy, was one of the deputies in in, the, in their uh, their their security organization, and we uh, we finally agreed uh, to go in and. Everyone was all set. What they did is General, I forget his name, General, General Secord rented an, a 707 and had it flown to Iceland. And we used the tail markings for that plane to go to Tehran. And what we did is North went ahead uh, to uh, Tel Aviv, and McFarlane and I and two communicators uh, flew to Manstein, and then we took an agency, an agency 707, flew it to Tel Aviv. And we were met at the plane, and we were taken to a, the basement of a hotel, given room keys, and then we were black the whole time. So, uh, Black meaning you were totally unidentified, no showing had nothing to do with the American so embassy right. or yeah. anything else. So they said to relax, and then Nier took us to dinner out on a pier, a very nice dinner. And the following day, we were told to, um, at a certain time, there would be a woman sitting at a desk in the foyer of a hotel. Just give her the keys and go down in the basement and uh, we'll pick you up. And they took us out and we, they had a black 707 and we used the call numbers for the one that was sitting in Iceland to fly to Tehran. We, it was an 11 hour trip because we had to appear to be coming from Mombasa. That was the drill. Apparently, the word hadn't gotten out to the Iranian military because when we entered Iranian airspace, they threatened to shoot us down. And I got on, you know, in Farsi, explaining who they should con contact in the prime minister's office. 
because uh, they're aware of the fact that we're coming and we're bringing well-needed things for your war effort. So then North busted in. He couldn't understand what I was saying in Farsi. So he busted in and said, this plane is flying to Iran in the order of the President of the United States. <laughs> I suppose that was intercepted by every... <laughs> but in any case, we didn't get shot down. We went to Tehran. As I mentioned to you before, we sat in the airport for two and a half hours until they came and picked us up. And um, we went to the top floor of the Hilton Hotel, which they had cleared out, and we were the only ones there. So that afternoon, a very young Iranian came by who was from the prime minister's office, he said. And we sat there for about an hour and a half listening to him uh, rant and rave about all the sins uh, America had committed during the past century or more. And uh, he left. So we staged um, a kind of a play on a supposed source, Russian source of ours named Vladimir. And North started it by asking me, we, we talked about what this young guy had said, and then you staged this. this you, and then, you then were, we staged the. You assumed the room was. Bugged. Oh, it was. It yeah. was. The LP was on uh, the same floor. <laughs> um, what had happened is that Kangerloo, who had met us and taken us to the hotel, knocked on a door there, and the guy came out, and everything was black in the room, and he said, "Now, if you need anything, just knock on this door, and someone will come out and get what you want." or order dinner or what have you. So we started talking about Vladimir. Now, the Soviets do a practice invasion of Iran. It's one of these things. It's mainly communications and alerting people and sort of just like they do it about every two or they do it about every two or three years. And so what we talked about is, uh, you know, North asking me, is there, was there anything new from Vladimir before you left? And, I went into a song and dance about the, the, uh, Vladimir reporting that there was some concern in the Central Committee about what was going on in Iran, things like that. And the, they were, a, 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 the Russians were very alert to what was, what was proceeding in Iran and very concerned about certain things with not much in the way of specifics. Well, the next day, you know, oh, that night we were standing out north, and I and uh, Bud McFarling was standing out on the balcony of the hotel, and both North and McFarling were concerned about the tone of the afternoon's lecture by this young Iranian. And I said, they're just putting down a bargaining point, and I think things will be much better tomorrow. And they were. The Iranians told me in the hall, as an aside, he said, look, we're having a problem. We're sending someone to Lebanon now to negotiate with the hostage holders. And I said, well, why did you wait so long? And they said, 
we really didn't think you'd come. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he said, we're going to need time. Well, the uh, formal negotiations didn't go very well. And these Iranians, some people on the Iranian side would, you know, come up to me in the hall and ask, you know, we can, can we try this or that or whatever? And uh, finally McFarland said, I don't want you talking to these people outside of an official thing. And I said, well, you're not going to get much done officially. The Iranians like to negotiate posh-de-parde vaziri-mis, which means behind the curtain and under the table. Um, but in any case, things weren't bad. Um, uh, same way, you know, the following day. But we didn't make much progress, and no hostages were getting um, released. So late in the evening, Actually, it's early the next morning, I guess, I think it was the 28th of May. Uh, the most senior guy we were negotiating came to me, and he said, look, can you get me in to see McFarland? And I said, sure. And I did, and he came in, and he said, look, uh, if we can get one hostage, we're trying to get two, but if we get one, would you send in the spare parts and the tow missiles that you got in Israel. And McFarland agreed. And uh, after, after this official left, McFarland said to me, okay, if there's no hostages re released, we're leaving tomorrow morning. And he called, he called the pilot of the plane, and he said, get everything ready. We're probably leaving tomorrow morning early. And the pilot says, we got a problem. And McFarland said, what's the problem? He said, we need fuel. Uh, and so McFarland turned to me and said, George, get the plane refueled. So I went down and knocked on the door. The guy came out, and we got the plane refueled. I will go to my deathbed, to my grave, without ever saying how I got the plane refueled. Let me just ask you one question. Uh, you mentioned this staged conversation that you had, and you referred to Vladimir, who was supposedly a, a, a general, a Soviet general. What was the purpose of staging that conversation, which you assumed would be bugged or taped or overheard? And the purpose, what is it you were trying to convey? Well, the purpose of what North wanted to convey was the fact that the Soviets were worried and that we did in the intelligence brief point out that they had very recently staged this uh, invasion of Iran, practice invasion of Iran. And we also showed them some stuff about the, the troops that were within a, just a few miles of the Iranian border. There was even some, I think, commercial, commercial, uh, commercial uh, 
satellite or satellite yeah no well it was commercial satellite photography uh, so the next morning though what was interesting is everyone is sort of getting breakfast and kangaroo comes running into the hotel and i'm there and he said get everything ready we got to get out immediately so i got everyone ready and out and we went down and they had these beat up old cars out in the front of the hotel and I got into the first car with Kangaroo and we roared out of the hotel and immediately went on back roads instead of there's a main road you know that goes no traffic lights and it goes right down to the road that leads out to the airport instead we went down all these back streets that I most of which I knew fairly well and uh, and then when we got to the airport we were on the military side and of course the plane had been refueled um, and one of the guys I was talking to who was a rev guard and was the guy we briefed on Soviet intentions uh, stayed with I was at the foot of the gangway going into the plane and stay I was talking to him and he was insisting that we maintain contact. And I said, okay, but for the time being, we'll have to do it through Gorbani Far. So then McFarland came out of the door and yelled at me to come up and get on the plane. They were, we were leaving. So we left. But was the, again, going back to the conversation on the imaginary Vladimir, were you tr trying to heighten the Iranians' concerns about Soviet? Yeah, Soviet intentions. Designs on Iran. Soviet, and Soviet intentions and designs on, on Iran. Invasion plan. Uh, and, and that fit in with the briefing we gave them. Okay, so that matched the briefing. I hope you enjoyed the second part of my talk with George Cave. Come back soon for the third and final part of our discussion. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.